The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. At the end of last year, 2020, former United States President Barack Obama was asked for a reading list. He chose a handful of books that had been influential to him, including Shakespeare's tragedies and Gandhi's autobiography. He also chose a pair of works by African-American luminaries Toni Morrison and James Baldwin. Only one other book made his list, and it's a classic American novel. Huck Finn? No. Moby Dick? Nope. It was On the Road by Jack Kerouac. But who was Jack Kerouac? He was the king of the beats, famously, but what does that mean? Who were these beats? Other than the group of poets and novelists who came of age in World War II and helped shape the path for America, cultural America, in its flow from the lost generation of the 20s and 30s toward the flower power generation of the baby boomer 60s. The teenaged boomers who came of age in the 60s loved Kerouac and On the Road. They looked to him as their poet, their avatar, their inspiration. The music of the day, the singer-songwriters like Bob Dylan and the Beatles and the Doors and the Grateful Dead on through Patti Smith and Tom Waits, cited Kerouac as one of their spiritual predecessors. Without him, Ray Manzarek said, and without On the Road in particular, The Doors would not have happened. It was a book from the 50s, when Eisenhower America was full of TV sets turned to Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best, a white bread America where everyone was watching the same thing and eating TV dinners, the same thing, and buying the same things, and it seemed thinking the same thoughts in the same exact way. Kerouac was the guy outside those living rooms, the hobo prophet who roamed those lonely streets seeing the blue glow of those television sets through the windows, turning his face to gaze at the stars, feeling haunted. Wasn't there more to life than all this sameness? Wasn't there more to life than a gray flannel suit and a good job with a pension? This was the inquiry of the Beats. This was their project, hanging out in seedy Times Square, going to see jazz in the village flying fast on gasoline-powered benders to San Francisco and Mexico City, living fast, living free, and loving literature. Poetry, novels, seeking truths wherever they could. New York was the epicenter, but San Francisco had a West Coast version of it too, and Kerouac is a legend there as well. In some ways, he's the straightest of the beats. Straight here doesn't mean not gay, although there's an element of that. He was the conventionally handsome one, the respectable one, the one who's reliable, the one who comes across in his writings as reasonable if restless, the one you can sort of count on. A lot of this is by comparison. The other beats are criminals or deeply flawed or outcasts or nearly psychopathic. Kerouac is the one we could imagine ourselves being if we were just a little more willing to cut the cord. That's the inspiration. Go out on a limb, but also write a great novel about it. Chafe against society, but remain in it enough that you still know what you're talking about. 
Don't set yourself up as an anarchist or a nihilist and end up being dumb about it or hypocritical or phony. Search for God, but respect the church. In many ways, to us, Kerouac and his worldview seem out of touch, a relic of a bygone era. What does this white man have to say to us now? He's an heir of Hemingway, subject to many of the same shortcomings, but sort of the correction to Hemingway in a sense. Hemingway said, write the truest sentence you know and write one sentence after another. Fact, 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 no adverbs. Very few adjectives, if you can get away with it. Declare, 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 like the sentences in a newspaper or a telegram. Kerouac's telegram machine run amok a mind bursting forth with no limits, the prose as eager to say its piece as the telegram did, dashes instead of periods sometimes, sentences that flow, pages that come out of the typewriter with no breaks. And the shortcomings? They're easy to see from our standpoint. They're all through these men of the era, Norman Mailer and Saul Bellow and Philip Roth. The beats are right there with them. Where are the women? Start with that. The men are great round figures, 100% human, red-blooded, complicated and deep, intellectual, full of life and keenly developed. Women are cardboard, mostly. They're props. Start there with the shortcomings. You can fill in the rest as you go. So yes, he's another man as primitive as Hemingway could be, but the opposite in literary style and more suitable for his generation and for a new way of being American, of being white in America, that is. And sometimes he's criticized for that as well. He's too American, too capitalist, even when he doesn't realize it, too misogynistic. We've moved on. And I'll add a new one, a more recent one. Car culture looks a lot different in an era of climate change. Examining literature in retrospect is complicated. It's easy to set Kerouac up as a Neanderthal, the sort of writer who got too much credit at the time and was too easily canonized. That makes him sound bland and predictable. But he's also weird, deeply weird, a walking set of conflicts. Let's celebrate that side of him, too. It's more interesting. And let's celebrate his poetic soul, which was deep and at times profound and led to some wonderful, ecstatic prose. His work and his life have inspired millions. Let's dig into who he was and why that is. Jack Kerouac, today, on The History of Literature. Hey, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Hello. Thank you for joining me. Jack Kerouac. I'm in the mood for Mr. Kerouac. So in a way, I'm also in a mood for getting beyond him and his novel, I Bought an Electric Car. <laughs> wow. 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 That was overdue. Our other car was attacked on the street by some thieves who jacked it up and stole the catalytic converter, just sawed it right off and sold it for the precious metal inside. The electric cars, you get these things and you realize, my goodness, we're, it, it must be like electric light bulbs when they first came around. You turn one on and you think 
goodbye candles, no more smoke and wax and accidental fires. This steady light is superior. And that's the thing. I can be nostalgic for the era of gasoline and oil, those days when my teenage idols, the guys in their late teens and 20s who had the hoods of their hot rods up and who stood shirtless over the engine, souping up their muscle cars while I rode past on my bicycle with playing cards clothes pinned to the spokes. I'm nostalgic for that era because that was the 1970s and 80s and I was young and it was fun. It was fun to hide in the trunk and go to the drive-in movies with these older brothers of my neighbors and friends. Fun to drive around. Fun to crank the radio and feel free. Just like it was fun to buy record albums and stare at the covers and see these music makers and read the lyrics. Decipher the code. It doesn't mean today is better or worse. It's different. Nostalgia doesn't mean better especially when we learn things that change our view of the past. I'm not recommending that we cling to gasoline and oil and the combustion engine. We know what it's doing to the planet, and it's awful. Our grandkids will be reading Kerouac and thinking, my God, all these gas-guzzling engines and no thought about the planet whatsoever. And that's correct. They will be entitled to read things that way. They will also say, well... It's of their time, and they will say, but even so. Just as we do when we talk about, let's say, George Washington owning slaves. It was of his time, but even so. If you want to justify that or condemn it, don't bother emailing me. I know the justification arguments, and I know the condemnation arguments. They are well known. You no doubt have your own way of thinking about this, and that's fine. I don't actually need to hear what it is, because I know. And yet... Because I'm here talking about literature, I'm going to have some thoughts about this at the end. How do we read things from the past when the past is full of things we condemn in the present? How do we think about the past? I have some thoughts and I don't need emails, my friends. I'm asking the questions here, not because I don't know, but because I'm presenting the questions as part of my presentation. And with the beats... It's not just fossil fuels. It's also the way women are presented. We know more about that, too. We are more enlightened now. And you know what else is gone? This feeling of freedom, of being off the grid. I felt this when I was first reading On the Road, when I was in Europe and traveling around on a Eurorail pass along with a bunch of other 20-year-olds. And you'd sort of disappear for a day or two and no one would know where you were exactly. And maybe you'd change course. You and a couple friends would say, hey, instead of going to England after France, let's go to Spain. And then you'd hear that someone else was in Spain now too. And you could maybe meet up. Maybe you had a friend in common. You could call and say, where is so-and-so? Have you seen him? Do you know where he was headed? Oh, he's in Barcelona. Maybe we should go there. Oh, he's probably not there. Maybe we'll try to catch him in Madrid. Or maybe there'd be a letter waiting for you at the American Express. Or maybe you'd just bump into someone on the train. But you were gone. You were out of reach. There was not a constant overlay of connectivity. Today, we have an email or a text or a a cell phone in your pocket. Everyone is reachable all the time. I'm not saying it's better or worse. That's so tedious. 
I'm emphasizing that there's an element in On the Road, that element where a character turns up or you hear from someone, someone else just bought a car and is headed somewhere crazy. And you need to try to catch that wave. Freedom is different now. The search for freedom is different too. Let's listen to a letter from listener Sarah. Dear Jack, thank you for waking me up last year. In part due to the hell of COVID, I walked away from my job editing a science magazine, a position I loved and sometimes loathed for 27 years. In the spring, when our family had all been vaccinated and I deemed it safe to venture out, I hired a life coach to help me figure out my next steps. It was useless. Then, last month, I found your podcast. Wow! Your love of history, humanity, and humor are giving me the insights I need to design my next life and make me feel better about the journey. Cheers to you. Perhaps I have uncovered another talent or side gig for you. Your ability to mentor the temporarily lost. Your student, Sarah. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Did I say that already? (laughs) This is another four wow moment. A life coach mentoring the temporarily lost. But Sarah, dear Sarah, I am permanently lost. How can I mentor you? Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why. Maybe you don't need to be found or to find Maybe you need to locate yourself among the lost. We're all here, Sarah, floating around, stumped, and striving. This is a great email for Kerouac Day. We are lost. We are searching. We will get there. And you're not alone. Mad prophets are also on this journey. And so are by-the-book podcasters like me. Sarah, thank you for the email, which was very humbling and flattering. I'm glad you have been enjoying the show. Your design for your next life and your journey await. Embrace it all. And maybe read a little Kerouac if you haven't before or if it's been a while. Listen to this episode first because I'm going to tell you how to read Kerouac, how to take the good and get beyond the bad. Check out On the Road. It's not to everyone's taste. It was controversial from the start. A major novel, said the New York Times. Its publication is a historic occasion. Another reviewer called it a series of Neanderthal grunts. We might need a whole episode just for On the Road. So let's focus on Kerouac today. In the meantime, Sarah... And all you listeners, you can go read or reread On the Road if you'd like, and then dip into his other books if you get obsessed. But I've read a bunch of them, and On the Road is the best. Quick break, and then we'll dive right into the life of Jack Kerouac. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. 
Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, so as we go through the life of Jack Kerouac, I'm going to zero in on some surprising things. That's how I organized my thoughts here. The things that surprise me. I know they surprised me at first, but they're still surprising even now. still have that capacity to surprise. Number one, you might think that Kerouac is some American-y American. He's in the Pantheon, or at least this book is on the road up there with Fitzgerald and Hawthorne and James. He was born in 1922 and grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts. Sounds kind of Tony, like a, a Mayflower heir. But he wasn't. His parents were French-Canadian, and English was not his native language. He spoke only French until he was seven, and he wasn't comfortable speaking in English until he was well into his teens. Later in life, he wrote poetry in French and a couple of novels in French. Novels for him were sometimes a, an affair of a few days to write one. It's not like he had to spend four years on one or something. But even so, we can see his facility with French from the, the fact that he wrote those novels in French and the poetry. He identified French with his parents, and much of his life was spent trying to understand his parents better. He wrote letters to his friends suggesting that he wanted to return to French to turn that back into something closer to a primary language for him. Which takes us to the second surprising thing when you know who Kerouac is. You'd imagine that he was someone who fought like crazy with his parents, a kid who runs away from home, who needs to be independent, who can't live with an overbearing father or mother, a kid who fights. Instead, he lived for much of his adult life with his mother. When he died, he was living with his third wife and his mom. His parents were Catholic, and he inherited Catholicism from them, especially from his mother. He also somewhat famously dabbled in Buddhism for a while. On the Road was not about two thrill-seekers. It was about two spiritual seekers. But he emphasized that he was not a beatnik. He was a Catholic. He painted a picture of the Pope. He used to say that On the Road was about two Catholics looking for God and finding him. His diaries were full of prayers and drawings of crucifixes. He did look for meaning. Let's talk about that search for meaning. When he was young, his family suffered a trauma. Jack was four years old when his older brother, Gerard, 
died at the age of nine. Those kinds of events can have seismic effects on a family. His parents had to cope with their grief, and young Jack was too little to know exactly why they were the way they were. He absorbed it all emotionally before he could intellectualize any of it. Guilt and grief and sadness and shock and anger at God, but also turning to God is all part of the mix. I've known parents who've gone through this. On the one hand, they hate God. How could this happen? How could God let this happen? On the other hand, they need to believe in God. They need to believe there was a reason. They need to believe in a heaven. It's natural that both sides of this question, both sides of this equation, intensify. And the remaining son, the four-year-old who's left, is set to drift on that ocean, hopefully to keep his head above water. Jack viewed his older brother as a guardian angel of his, and he wrote a novel called Visions of Gerard about him. The Catholicism of his mother ran very deep inside his core. When he became famous and he was nevertheless miserable, he used to say that he couldn't commit suicide because of his Catholic religion. So he was going to drink himself to death slowly which is what he, in fact, pretty much did. It's often said that the Beats only liked their mothers and didn't like other women much. Certainly, women get short shrift in their works. Dean Moriarty in On the Road claims to love women. I love, 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 love them, he says, but that's for sex and support and for loving yourself for being in love. There's a greater love for men and the company of men, for brotherhood, that turns women, unfortunately, into nags and shrews and pairs of breasts. Kerouac's women in his life sometimes complain about him, but often they talk about how sensitive he was, too. They stand up for him. He was supportive of women near him who wrote. He would say, see, don't revise. Your instincts are better than that. Keep it the way you had it at first. We're up to number three now, surprising thing, and that is how conventionally handsome he was, how attractive he was to both men and women. Allen Ginsberg, the poet, his friend, talked about this, marveling at Kerouac in his youth, kind of like a Greek god. And he was a football star in high school, which earned him a scholarship to Columbia University. Lowell, Massachusetts is about 30 miles from Boston, where there are Plenty of schools. The Spinal Tap joke where their manager says, I couldn't, I couldn't get you any gigs in Boston, but don't worry about that. It's not much of a college town. Is a good joke. Boston College and Notre Dame also offered Kerouac scholarships. It's a fluke in a way that Kerouac wound up in New York at this time in his life. And we're lucky that it happened. We're also lucky that the military didn't take him for long. If you did some quick math when I said he was born in 1922, you might have realized that in 1941, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, he was 19 years old, prime age for the draft. His football career at Columbia had already fizzled out. His coach had said, after one play in which Kerouac got up slow, his coach said, stop loafing, you malingerer. It's not a direct quote, but that's the gist of it. Stop going so slow, weakling. Play through your pain. And Kerouac said, no, I'm injured. Well, shake it off. You know how coaches can be. 
And Kerouac, it turned out, had a broken leg. After he dropped out of the football program, he left school for a while and joined the Merchant Marine, then signed up for the Navy, but he was discharged honorably for what they called indifferent character. One doctor wrote down, he has a schizoid personality. Apparently, Kerouac had told him, I don't like being around people. I can't help it. I want to be alone, which was enough for the doctors to kick him out. He returned to Columbia in the Upper West Side, where he met Allen Ginsberg, the poet who would soon be as famous as him, or almost as famous, and whose work, Howl, is the other work, the one other work we might say is as integral to the beat generation as On the Road. Nothing else really comes all that close. The, the, on the Road is the Beat Generation Bible. Let's put it that way. We are now up to number four. Kerouac is back in New York, hanging around Columbia University, and he becomes an accessory to murder. Yes, that's one that surprised me too. We'll have that story after our break. The killing of David Kammerer is one of the more unusual events in American literature. What happened was this. Kerouac was out of football thanks to the broken leg, so he dropped out of school. He still lived in New York on the Upper West Side with his girlfriend, Edie Parker. In 1942, he joined the Merchant Marine, and then the following year, the Navy. He turned 21. He asked for an aspirin for his headaches, and they diagnosed him with schizoid personality. This is his recounting of it anyway. He discharged him from the Navy. He was writing all this time, by the way, writing novels about man and society and being frustrated, the individual who seeks a different path. One of my favorite Kerouac stories dates to this period. It was when he was out of the Navy and back in Columbia. His parents moved to Queens eventually, and he lived with them in a neighborhood called Ozone Park, which led his friends to call him the Wizard of Ozone. Get it? Like the Wizard of Oz but Ozone, kind of like the movie Zardoz, which is Wizard of Oz. Get it? Zard Oz. Not sure why people feel the need to make puns out of the Wizard of Oz all the time, but who am I to talk, I suppose, with my early novel, The Gizzard of Oz, still turning up now and then, despite the best efforts of my publisher to seek it out and have it pulped. But back to Kerouac. Kerouac at Columbia met these Lifelong literary friends, Allen Ginsberg, the poet and eventual hippie and cultural bomb thrower, was 17 when Kerouac met him, and a literary fanatic. William S. Burroughs, the author of Naked Lunch, was there too. He was a wised-up beat, the older one, the one who came from money in St. Louis and knew about the hard stuff like heroin. He became the character Old Bull in On the Road. He eventually shot his wife and had a bunch of conflicting stories about that event, including one in which it was a William Tell stunt gone awry. We need to do shows on all these guys, Ginsburg and Burroughs, for sure. I guess I should have said Naked Lunch is up there with the beat. 
the beat novels. I don't consider it really a beat novel, but I guess it is. I guess it should be included. So maybe that's the three. Naked Lunch, Howl, and On the Road. Mm. One person we probably won't do a show on unless it's just to talk more about this particular event is the beat poet Lucian Carr. Like Burroughs, Lucian Carr was from St. Louis. As a teenager, he'd been stalked by a man named David Kammerer, a former professor in St. Louis who was obsessed with him. Kerouac was friends with Carr at Columbia. This is how Kerouac met Ginsburg and Burroughs, by the way. Burroughs, Carr, and Kammerer had all known each other in St. Louis. They all came from prominent families. For five years, Carr moved from school to school, and Kammerer followed him to each one. There's some dispute about whether Carr welcomed this attention, at least somewhat, or in larger part, but it looks bad from the outside. Carr was young when all this started. Carr attempted suicide at the University of Chicago and later claimed it was some kind of art project, but he was in a psychiatric ward for two weeks afterwards. His family thought this was because Kammerer couldn't stop hounding him. That's what they attributed it to. Carr claimed that he and Kammerer were never intimate, and Burroughs at least believed him. Carr's mother brought him to New York, where she was living, and enrolled him at Columbia, hoping to keep him away and keep him safe. Carr was bright and did well in school. He was viewed as brilliant and of having a kind of visionary ability that his literary-minded friends admired. They added another poet, Hubert Hunky, to their mix. He was more of an underworld guy, very seedy fellow. These guys were now on their beatnik path, chasing shadows at night in Times Square, talking about literature, writing poetry and novels. Kerouac had written a million words by the time he met Burroughs. And this is where I was hoping to get one of my favorite Kerouac stories in. I don't remember where I heard it, but it has stuck with me. People would be talking about literature in those days. Those days at Columbia and in the village and in Times Square. And they'd talk about literature and what they had read. And they'd fall into that trap of saying, I've read Melville. Have you? Yes, of course. Moby Dick. Bartleby the Scrivener. And whoa. Excuse me a minute, there seems to be someone at the door. Ooh, scratching. Hello, this is Bartleby. Yes. The Scrivener. Ah, Bartleby. You might know me from the story by Herman Melville called... Mm. Bartleby. Mm -hmm. The Scrivener. Ah, I became I famous see. for my catchphrase... I would prefer not to. Yes. So indeed. when that irritating chatterbox Jack oh. Wilson asked me to contribute oh, to his podcast, I replied that I would prefer not to. Mm. Then he asked me not to make a small monthly contribution. Well, naturally, I preferred not to not do that. So I signed up. Ah. <sighs> Won't you please join me in not not donating to the podcast? Ah, yes, Bartleby, our old friend. He couldn't stay away. We summoned him. 
inadvertently. And he did not not want to stay away. Well, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com slash literature and sign up for a small monthly contribution. This week, we're thanking new patrons, Scott, Carl, Tanya, Jim, Michelle, Julie, Jed, and Jeffrey, Martin, and Riley. We also sent out a batch of Jack Wilson books to our patrons who sign up at the Proust level. I think it's the Proust level. If we owe you a book, and you have not received it, please do send us an email to let us know your mailing address, and we will pop one in the post. And as always, our thanks to all our patrons who truly do make this show possible. And to all of our one-time donors over at historyofliterature.com shop, where you can buy me a virtual coffee, which is actually just a bit of cash, although I do drink plenty of coffee, and I would welcome the chance to lift my mug and think of you. Okay, back to Kerouac. So he was listening to these people saying, I've read Melville. Have you? Yes, Moby Dick and Bartleby. Well, how about Hawthorne? Have you read The Marble Fawn? Oh, I have. And Melville, oh, did I mention I also read Pierre and The Confidence Man? I forgot to mention those. And Kerouac interrupted these people and said, no, 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 no. What are you doing? You're getting nothing from this conversation. You're just checking boxes. Or ticking boxes, as our friends across the pond say. Checking and ticking, that's not good. That's not getting anything out of literature. A bit of bragging, maybe, but there's no substance in that conversation. The way to talk about Melville is to say, hey, I just read this wild book by this madman genius about a guy on a ship who becomes enslaved to the idea of chasing this whale, and he and his obsessed mind take over the collective mind of the ship and they're all in this chase along with him and and what do you do if you're on this ship do you resist this captain or do you give in and bend yourself to his will and what is a puny man doing on this little bit of planks this handful of planks in this giant ocean anyway with storms all around and a massive killer underneath ready to pound you from below unless you can stab him with these harpoons and bleed him out first, which sounds insane, but that was their job back then, their profession. There were guys on the ship who were experts at throwing harpoons, and this was all part of American commerce. The blubber was used in the lamps to light the rooms of little old ladies who drank tea and read books at night. What do you think of that? Let me tell you what it did to me, what this book did to me, how what it made me think, how it changed me, unless I can get you to tell me how it affected you first, because I want to know. Anyway, I've paraphrased Kerouac and elaborated upon that statement of his as it came to me, because it is kind of like the, the motto for this show, the guiding light, the paragraph in my mind I return to again and again. What is literature? What is it for? How is it to be part of our lives? And just saying, I read A, B, and C and liked those books, that's not enough, people. It might be enough for you. It's not enough for me. I'm quoting from another story, by the way. Some married friends of mine who were in a plane that was going down. (laughs) And he said, when all else, above all else, or no matter what happens now, I know we were married and in love. And that sustains me. And she said, that's not enough for me. (laughs) Let's save that one for another day. Those are some, getting some deep Jack Wilson cuts here. Like to linger on those, but we're running late on time. Back to Lucian Carr, the teenage 
Keatsian beauty who had had a man. He, he was a Boy Scout leader when he and David Cameron met. I mean, Cameron was the Boy Scout leader and Lucian Carr was the Boy Scout, which is not a great detail. It's disturbing. Lucian Carr had this man following him for five years through multiple cities and colleges. And now, just as Carr was finding himself as a poet and kind of a merry prankster around campus and in New York City at large, Cameron turned up. Sullenly, he hung around this circle of cars with these new friends, Kerouac and Ginsburg and all the rest. And then, one night, things turned violent and Carr killed him, stabbed him to death. Kerouac was immersed in the story of that night. Kerouac and Carr, this just gets stranger and stranger. Kerouac and Carr had this idea that they could join a merchant ship and make their way to France. Kerouac spoke French, of course, and Carr was going to pose as a deaf mute. And the two of them, that's what you do when you don't speak the language, but you don't want to call yourself out. You pretend that you're deaf. So Kerouac was going to speak French. Carr was going to pose as a deaf mute. And the two of them were going to walk across France, which was this long-held dream of Kerouac's, and be in Paris in time for the liberation of Paris by the Allies. This was 1944, and the war had finally turned. So the two men, Kerouac and Carr, went so far as to board the ship, but they were kicked off by the first mate just before the ship took off. So they went to the bar instead, the West End. This was their hangout. Kerouac left the bar before Carr did. He bumped into David Kammerer, who wanted to know where Carr was, as Kammerer always seemed to want to know. So Kerouac told him. Carr later claimed that Kammerer, after meeting up with Kerouac, came to the bar and one thing and another happened, ended up in a sexual assault, Kammerer, who was larger than Carr, started to overpower him, and in self-defense, Carr had killed him with a knife. In fact, with a Boy Scout knife that he'd had since those days in St. Louis. Carr then tied Kammerer's hands and feet together, wrapped his belt around him and Kammerer's own belt around him, and weighed the body down with rocks. This was all in Riverside Park, by the way and then dumped his body in the river. Now, after that, Carr went to Burroughs and said, look, these are Cameron's cigarettes. He told him what happened, and the cigarettes were bloody. Burroughs flushed them down the toilet and said, you have to get a lawyer, and you have to turn yourself in. And Carr went to find Kerouac, who was with a friend of his at this point, a friend of Hubert Hunky's, an even lowlier, even seedier character named Abe Green, and Kerouac and Green got rid of the murder weapon for Carr and buried Kammerer's eyeglasses in Morningside Park. And then the two of them went to a movie and swung by the Museum of Modern Art to look at paintings. WTF, Mr. Kerouac. What a, tw- <laughs> what a stretch of time. Planned to stow away on a ship, sail to France, where you're going to walk across France with a guy who's posing as a deaf mute, make it to Paris, 
That doesn't pan out. So instead, you and this friend go to a bar. Then you tell a man where to find this friend. Your friend kills the man, dumps the body in the river, gives you some evidence. You bury a dead man's glasses, and then you go to watch a movie and look at some paintings. Wow. At this point, Burroughs' advice to Carr prevailed. Carr turned himself in, and Kerouac was arrested as a material witness. Kerouac didn't have the bail money, a hundred bucks. His parents refused to pay. So he turned to his girlfriend, Edie, who didn't have the money either, but her father did, and her father said, I will pay, but only if you two get married. So they did. And I don't mean that they needed to get engaged and needed to promise to be married. I mean Kerouac and Edie got married before he got out at the municipal building with detectives serving as witnesses. A few years later, this marriage was annulled. The whole incident is an ugly one. It became, it hit the newspapers. It was kind of shocking. It was full of the homophobia of the day and violence and the taking of a life. And Ginsburg was gay. And the others in the beat circle were gay or bisexual or gay curious. We might say Ginsburg worshipped Kerouac, I think it's fair to say. Kerouac held him at arm's length, but seems they did have some dalliances. What was unmistakable was that the press was all over the murder. These were prominent families in St. Louis who had sent their young men to New York City, here to the August Columbia University. And the circumstances of the dead body and the disposal of it in the Hudson River from Riverside Park was shocking. And gay panic was part of the coverage. Whether it was justified to kill, what if it wasn't assault, what if it wasn't a life-threatening encounter, what if it was just... A proposition, is there such a thing as a gay panic defense? The newspapers at the time seemed to think so. Carr was sentenced to prison for one to twenty years, and he served two years before he was released. Kerouac and Ginsburg and Burroughs all wrote about the event later. Kerouac now was married, Edie Parker. He was went to Michigan, where Edie was from, but then he returned to New York, and soon enough, he was out on the road, crisscrossing the country to meet up with these literary-minded friends of his who had also fanned out, ventured out back to St. Louis, out to San Francisco, elsewhere, too. They were moving around now. We should mention other beats, like Lawrence Ferlinghetti and John Clellan Holmes, whose article about the beat generation sort of defined it, popularized the phrase, even though the phrase was actually originally... Kerouac, well, actually, originally it was a comment Hubert Hunky had made. Hunky said that he was beat to his socks, meaning beat down. He'd had enough. He was exhausted and tired. Not lost. That was the Hemingway and Fitzgerald generation that had come before in Gertrude Stein's famous phrase. But beat, not so much lost, tired, cynical, jaded. There's also, in the word beat, in the beat generation, the beat of music. The drive forward, the rhythm, the drums, the primitive and natural element of a beat. Finding the beat, something that that makes you move. 
Just like feeling the wind makes you move or, or feeling your feet on the soil and food and sex. The roar of an engine rumbling through your soul, a thunderstorm at night. That's the beat, too. And the electrified city of Manhattan full of night hustlers and juke joints and wild jazz music and people stuffed with people, dizzy with possibilities. And finally, beat stands for beatific, beatified, a spiritual sense. Those angels that Kerouac knew and believed in, his brother Gerard, who had impressed the nuns with his visions of Jesus. The nuns believed that Gerard was an angel, just as young Kerouac did. And another childhood friend of Kerouac's died young, and his father who died when Kerouac was still in his early 20s, and Jesus and God, the beats were looking for all of that, and Buddhism too, eventually. We could also mention Gary Schneider as another beat writer. He's even more reliable than Kerouac, in my view. He's probably my favorite writer of all the beats, the poet Gary Schneider. Although you might say he's more beat-adjacent than beat-central. And of course... The man we cannot leave out. We have to mention Kerouac's great muse. The man who dominated his life and his thinking and who dominates on the road as the character Dean Moriarty. We have to talk about Neil Cassidy. We're up to whatever number now. I've lost track. Here's a surprise. Jack Kerouac, the great poet of the American Highway, didn't have a driver's license and didn't even know how to drive until he was 34. He met Neil Cassidy, and Neil was a great driver. He'd stolen 500 cars by the time he met Kerouac. That requires some fast driving to stay ahead of the law. Cassidy, I don't really know. <sighs> I don't know where to begin with Cassidy. The Beats loved him. They thought he was special. And I've seen some films of Cassidy where he sort of struts around with this incredible confidence. And yet has a touch of vulnerability about him. He's the sort of guy who would take his shirt off all the time and have this muscular chest, kind of peacock, a peacock's chest. But he also had a, a sadness and a curiosity in his eyes, a vulnerability. I'm sure he was very charming in real life. He was married to a 15-year-old woman when On the Road takes place. But he and his wife were estranged and his life was full of affairs. Cassidy was was not someone you could pin down. Cassidy wrote letters to Kerouac, which blew him away. Kerouac thought that Cassidy was a true American, a, quote, wild, yay-saying overburst of American joy, end quote, flying down roads, burning like the lit fuse of a firecracker, flying after freedom and food and sex like a holy primitive. His letters were long, 10,000 words. One was 40,000 words which is almost the length of a novel. Not a novel like On the Road, 175,000 words. But a novel is getting close to Gatsby length. And it was, quote, all first person, this is the letter now, all first person, fast, mad, confessional, completely serious, all detailed, end quote. Ginsburg said the letters read, quote, with spew and rush, without halt, all Unified and molten flow, no boring moments, everything significant and interesting, sometimes breathtaking in speed and brilliance, end quote. Well, remember, these guys were all hopped up on Benzedrine, 
half the time Cassidy was, and Ginsburg was when he wrote Howl, and Kerouac when he wrote many of his novels, including On the Road, Benzedrine, Uppers, Caffeine, whatever could get your mind racing, only sometimes your mouth starts foaming too. And as for Cassidy, he was a low-level criminal from a young age, all kinds of juvenile delinquency, born in Utah and grew up in Colorado, and got in trouble everywhere. He had a mentor, a teacher, who supervised him and got him work and bailed him out, and it seems was his first lover. Ginsburg was a lover off and on for 20 years. Cassidy didn't get in at Columbia, but he was there to hang out, and he met Kerouac and Ginsburg, and they were blown away by his spirit. This was a new kind of cowboy, restless and energetic. A cowboy for the mid-20th century an outlaw one step ahead of the law, and he wrote these wild letters to them, and as for Cassidy, I just, I have to say, I just don't see it. Maybe you had to be there. Maybe you had to know him. I've read his letters, and I didn't find them as interesting as Ginsburg and Kerouac did. To me, they're incredibly narcissistic and sophomoric, a little boring, frankly. But no matter, he's not an important writer. He's an important figure, mainly because of Kerouac, who was so taken in by Cassidy that he made him the centerpiece of his book. And then he thought, I need to write this book about Neil Cassidy in the Neil Cassidy style, the style of his letters, free-flowing, a mad rush of prose. In three weeks, Kerouac wrote 175,000 words, about 9,000 words a day. We'll get to his writing style in a moment. But first, let's finish with Neil Cassidy. Cassidy lived until he was 41. He took up with Ken Kesey in the acid crowd in the 60s. He was in Mexico. He was all over Texas, Oregon, New York, San Francisco. He's in the most famous passages of On the Road, especially the ending, which I won't spoil. But I'll give you this taste of prose from earlier in the book, since we haven't heard much yet from Kerouac's actual writing. This is the narrator, Sal Paradise, who's a stand-in for Kerouac. And he says, quote, And I shambled after, as usual as I've been doing all my life, after people who interest me, because the only people for me are the mad ones, the ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, desirous of everything at the same time, the ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, burn, burn like the fabulous yellow Roman candles, exploding like spiders across the stars. And in the middle, you see the blue center light pop, and everyone goes, Oh. End quote. That's what Kerouac wanted. That's what he wanted, the mad ones. And Cassidy was the king of the mad ones, the king of the burning Roman candles. Cassidy's letters told him that he needed more freedom and his novels, which were had been written in the style of Thomas Wolfe, not the white suit Thomas Wolfe of the 60s and 70s and 80s, not the bonfire of the vanities Tom, Thomas Wolfe, but the you-can't-go-home-again Thomas Wolfe. A little more realistic, almost in a Dreiser tradition. That was not, that was what Kerouac was writing in at first, but he realized that he needed to be more free in this prose as well. And the way to get there was to be free as he was writing. 
to write in a, quote, rush of mad ecstasy without self-consciousness or mental hesitation, end quote. Spontaneous prose, he called it, and he believed in it the way Buddhists believe in meditation or jazz musicians believed in improvisation. There's truth in it, in getting yourself out of your way. It takes practice and dedication to be able to do this. Jazz musicians know their chords and practice like crazy to be ready to improvise. And Kerouac wrote in his journals and all these ideas that went into his novel. They were already prepped in his mind. But when it came time to write, he put a big scroll of paper into the typewriter so nothing would stop him. And he wanted the book to be published on a scroll so nothing could stop the reader either. He lost that battle. But he wrote for 20 days on his typewriter scroll, and he was done. Later, he revised it. It took several years before the book came out. But the big thing was that mad rush. And the idea that he had was that the shape and structure of the novel would emerge from the process, that the overlay of words on top of the thoughts would be like, quote, a jazz poet blowing a long blues in an afternoon jazz session on Sunday, end quote. Ginsburg called it spontaneous bop prosody. Another time, Kerouac wrote a book called The Subterraneans. It was another novel, which he started the day he realized his affair with an African-American woman was over. He took some Benzedrine, cranked up the typewriter with teletype paper on a scroll, and wrote a book in three days. After I was done, he said, I was pale as a sheet and had lost 15 pounds and looked strange in the mirror. End quote. <laughs> Artists of the era, visual artists like Jackson Pollock, were doing something similar. Kerouac tried to do this too. Tried to replicate the artists. He wrote Visions of Cody. Cody was the name he used for Neil Cassidy after he retired Dean Moriarty from On the Road. Called Neil Cassidy Cody at that point. Visions of Cody was Kerouac trying to sketch in words. He had done it with music. It worked for music. Well, why not art? Well, it was less successful than On the Road. What is the novel about? Asked the Times reviewer. Well, I've read it, and I'm damned if I know. Discerning readers like Malcolm Cowley saw when they read On the Road, they saw that Kerouac was fresh, a new voice, a corrective to Hemingway. Hemingway dominated the literary scene at this point. People talked like Hemingway characters talked. That's how influential he was. Hemingway was periods and short sentences, grim, tight, reserved. Dig deep in your mind and only talk when you have to. Think hard and carefully about what you want to say. Kerouac said, talk a mile a minute without thinking and let the truth flow out of you. You can't think your way into the truth. You will get in the way. On a small scale, it doesn't have to be just lots of words. On a small scale, these principles work too. Kerouac wrote haiku, and he truly understood haiku. Not all, not all Americans do, I don't think. I'll have a show about this at some point. He said, this is a quote from Kerouac, Above all, a haiku must be very simple and free of all poetic trickery and make a little picture and yet be as airy and graceful as a Vivaldi pastorella. End quote. That's nice. When it came to a long form like a novel, where the mad rush of prose can be a little suffocating to the reader, not every critic was a fan. That's not writing, said Truman Capote. It's typing. But it was more than that. It was a philosophy of writing, just like 
Actors like Brando were acting in a way that Spencer Tracy and Gary Cooper were not. The style shifted. First thought, best thought, said Kerouac. Get out of your way. Stop revising. Your conscious self will steer you toward the conventional and limit what you truly want to say. Language is like the notes in music. Words have harmonies with one another. They follow patterns. The sounds and meaning are there to be exhaled from a sensitive mind. Thoughts are like breathing. Better to let them free than to think about them too much. Structure will emerge. So, although the comparison, or maybe I should say the contrast with Hemingway was inevitable, Hemingway ruled the field of masculine American writing in the 40s and 50s, and Kerouac was writing against it. But there's another great American tradition that we can place Kerouac into, not Hemingway, but Hemingway's favorite novel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. How does that book end? Huck Finn decides he's going to cast aside civilization, escape it, and head for the territory. It's a very American sentiment, a very American moment. I need to get away from these people and these rules. Let me find a space where there are none, where people with their hypocrisy and their deadening conventional wisdom will get out of my way. Well, that was in the 19th century when there were still uncharted waters ahead of the great ship Huckleberry. There was land without laws. By the 20th century, when Kerouac was writing, the territory was not there. Or was it? Maybe it is there, but it's all, it's all been charted. But the territory still exists. What was the territory for Huck? Well, he didn't say specifically. He didn't say, I'm headed to Nebraska or Idaho or Colorado or New Mexico. He said the territory. Because it's not a real place. It's not defined. It's a state of mind more than anything. And Kerouac is in that mindset too. On the Road says there's still territory. There's still a place outside civilization. You seek it by heading out. You find it by looking within. Nabokov, who wrote Lolita, another great road novel at almost the same time, grasped this about America, too, and the American mentality, that view of exploring and searching and trying to discover the desperate yearning for innovation and the idea that everyone thinks one way and you can think a different way. I don't mean that you think for yourself in some dumb way, like rejecting science and thinking you're brave because you and a million other people are rejecting science, or saying, hey, I can wear ripped jeans just like a million other people who are also wearing ripped jeans at the same time were rebelling by doing everything the same way. No, I don't mean that. I mean that everyone everyone decides that having a house and a lawn and a backyard grill and a two-car garage is the dream and the ideal. And you say, yes, sure. But who are the people who own those things? What's in their mind, their hearts, their souls? It's that search not to be different for the sake of being different, but to examine what it means to be the same. Are people settling for something because it's what they want or because it's what society wants from them? Are there core values that are worth pursuing or is life empty? And now I get to look at the beats for who they were and whether we can look past their flaws. And I can give you a new idea for how to read literature, even when the writers were let's face it, jerks of some form or another. I want to tell a story of my friends, 
Naomi and Megan, I may have told this story before, was a big moment in my life. We were in Italy traveling by train, probably to Sicily. It was another great trip. I haven't talked much about that trip. It was a good one. Somebody said, you can pick any time you want in history. What area do you, what era do you want to live in? And Naomi said, well, knowing how women were treated back then, I, I could only choose right now. I can't imagine being any happier in the past. It just seems like I'd be frustrated. And Megan said, oh, I don't know. What about Catherine the Great? And Naomi just looked at her and said, oh, you think, you think you're going to be a queen? <laughs> I always took that as great advice. It informed me and in how I viewed the world. I wouldn't travel back in time and be the pharaoh designing his pyramid. I'd be the wretch hauling the stones with a rope over my shoulder. I identify with the little guy because I am the little guy. I was born one and I will die one. It's just my fate. Okay, but now... What does that have to do with Kerouac? It's because I know people read Kerouac as I did and they start itching to travel as I did and they start wishing that they had more freedom in their lives. They question their own values. They like the idea that they too are a little bit of an outlaw, a renegade, someone who doesn't just take the life that was handed to them. They resist, they rebel, not because they can't live up to expectations, because they aren't sure they want to. They aren't sure those expectations are enough. From the outside, it doesn't look like enough. Are these people really happy who are living these lives? And then you look up at the sky above and you think, holy Moses, you see the ocean and you think, who am I? You read a letter from a podcast listener and you think, wow, 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 wow. Four wows, always four. And you look in literature for kindred spirits, not the prim and proper, not the cramped and crimped, not the pinched. Pinched. What an awful way to live life. Pinched. Not even dramatic. Self-pinched. You're stuck. You're flat. You're not the biggest you that you can be. And here they come. The Beats. They were onto this. They wanted to expand too. They wanted to live. They wanted to pump themselves full of literature and be Melville and Ishmael and Queequeg and Ahab and the whale all at once. They wanted to soar out into that ocean at high speed with the salt air stinging their cheeks and pelting their smile and their wide open eyes. You think, if I lived in the 40s and 50s, I'd like to think I'd do that too. I'd make my way to New York and hang out in Times Square and be sharp and be smart and be open to life, be open to jazz and music and art. I'd be sensitive and sad and look for God in the sky and look for God in poetry and paintings and prose. And if my friend murdered someone, I'd bury the eyeglasses and go to the movies. And you hear someone say, oh yes, the beats. Sigh. What about the women? What about capitalism? Those beats didn't realize they were living off the bounty of everyone's labor, did they? Independently wealthy, some of them getting money sent to them by their, from their aunt, others stealing cars that didn't belong to them. How do they think those cars got there? People worked hard for those cars. The beats ignored all that. They treated the world like their playground. Well, now what? Where does that leave you? Someone who was finding yourself in the beats and then it gets cut off. Well, here's the thing. Take it from me, Jack Wilson, Jack with an E. You don't need to say, I'd love to have been a beat like Kerouac, but doggone it, he was a, a misogynistic jerk 
and the others were as bad, if not worse. So that's now off limits to me. You can say, I'd love to have been a Kerouac, but I could be even better than him. I don't need to limit myself in the ways he was limited. I can see even better than he can. I can see that the road he was on was full of burned up carbon. And that was a problem. I can see that women were props and tools, and that was a problem. I can see that their vaunted freedom was largely a great privilege that other people worked to support, and that was a problem. I can see all these problems because I see his flaws, just like he saw the flaws in religion and society of his time in the human condition itself, but maybe not his own flaws. But this isn't like Naomi and Megan, where Megan isn't allowed to plausibly believe that she'd have been a queen. It's the idea that you get to draw from literature, from Kerouac or anyone else, what you want. You can read on the road, take what you want, and discard the rest. You don't ignore the flaws, but it's not useful for you. Just because you want Kerouac to inspire you in one way doesn't mean you're going to worship him and follow him in everything. You don't need to defend him in everything, because you'll be too busy taking the good and using that in whatever way that's helpful to you. And the bad is there for you too, if you want it. It doesn't mean you have to agree with the bad. It doesn't mean you're bad for liking the part that's good and compartmentalizing the rest. Because for all Kerouac's flaws, and for all his guilt and misery, he also saw the excitement. He saw the uplifting side of life. He saw the possibilities in a sky full of darkness, but blazing with stars and fireworks too. And that's what you can do when you read Kerouac or any other literature. You can take the good, let it inspire you, and not let yourself be dragged down by the bad. You also don't have to fall all over yourself defending it either because it's not you. You're not Kerouac. You can be Kerouac plus. Kerouac plus you. You improvise your life. That's all it is. And if you keep your mind open and you read all these books, you can put your own imprint on all of it. You breathe and you blow and you paint and you write and you seek and you become something better. You become something new and something that no one else has ever been before because the world hadn't thought it before because you are just coming along now. You are you. Thinking your amazing thoughts living your amazing life. You are you. And that is good enough for me. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Jack Kerouac for his inspiration and to our listener, Sarah, who sent us that lovely email and who is on her way. Good luck, Sarah. I will be back. Oh, and Bartleby for swinging by. Thank you, Bartleby. I will be back with a bit of Henry James. Oh, the beast in the jungle. Maybe we need something as a palate cleanser first. That story might just end me with the way I'm feeling now. It's so good. We also have a special guest I'm in negotiations with. We will have her on soon as well, I hope. That's going to be a fun one. Oh, so much literature. A listener emailed me and said, Latvian literature. You got to get on that, Jack. Latvian literature. You're missing out. I suppose that's right. Latvian literature. I know nothing about it, I don't think. I can't think of a single work I've read in, from Latvia unless it was someone I didn't realize was Latvian. I will need to dig into that first. Latvian literature. And Australians cry, Jack, we've been asking for five years. And fans of Flannery O'Connor 
fan flans do they call them flans flans say what about part two jack where is part two and meanwhile the books pile up and i try and i try and i try it i will get there people we are doing our best with this creaky little thing we will well we'll never arrive but we'll keep moving for a little while at least i'm jack wilson thank you for listening and we'll see you next time